Hello and welcome to the Wales Journal of Education podcast. I'm Professor Tom Crick from Swansea University and I'm one of the editors of the journal and today I'm joined by Dr Robin Owen from Liverpool Hope University. We'll be discussing his article entitled Predicting Undergraduate Students Learning from a Lecture, The Role of Self-Control, Motivation and Mental Effort. Robin, thank you very much for talking to us on the podcast today. Hi Tom and thanks for having me. Pleasure, thank you. So can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, obviously your kind of academic career and, and your role at, at Liverpool Hope University? I'm originally from Austria and I lived there until the age of 10. My father is Welsh and I've been living in Wales now for about 17 years, which means that I've learned Welsh being immersed in North Wales uh, and having also studied at Bangor University through the medium of Welsh. So when the kind of like coincidence and opportunity happened of doing educational research and getting that published in a Welsh journal, especially one that's open access, I thought, kind of like bingo, this is everything coming together quite nicely, which was really cool. And yeah, so my academic career was that initially I wanted to become a secondary school physical education teacher. And I was absolutely determined to do this and nothing, absolutely nothing was going to stop me. So 12 hour shifts in the library to make sure I get a first class degree to ensure my place on a PGCE were pretty normal, but I made a mistake and I kind of worked a little bit too hard, which then <laughs> opened uh, the, the avenue for a PhD. And I thought, well, I might as well do a PhD because it'll fun be funny being a doctor and being a PE teacher. That was my thought. But then I got stuck in academia and now um, I'm a lecturer at Liverpool Hope University. I was also a lecturer for two years in Bangor University in North Wales. And uh, I specialize in skill acquisition. So the kind of trend of teaching, pedagogy and just learning in general has been very prevalent uh, throughout my career. And yeah, it's something I love. Um, and yeah, it's been great to be involved with this journal. Oh, thank you, Rob. That's really some really interesting themes, which I'm sure we'll kind of pick up today as in part of our discussion. But that that point around the prominence and importance of bilingualism or multilingualism, and particularly that theme around physical education, physical literacy, health and well-being, which we know are kind of key key issues, both kind of educationally, but certainly societally. So I'm I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll explore that a bit more as we go through the work. But keen to hear your, you know, I suppose, the underlying rationale for this for this work. So how did this come together? What was the, the kind of motivation for, for, for doing this study? So I would like for the exact motivation for the very beginning of this uh, journal article to be a little bit more attractive almost, but it started a little bit mundane as part of kind of like my career in academia and wanting to have the door open of becoming a lecturer. I did a PG cert in higher education as part of becoming a fellow of the Higher Education Academy, which is in the United Kingdom, as you probably know, is quite a desirable kind of tick box to have when, when wanting to become a lecturer or keeping that door open as it was for me at that point. So in the end, I wanted to do a research study which didn't just fulfill the criteria of this PG cert, but I also wanted to do something I was genuinely interested in and I thought would genuinely create some sort of useful knowledge I was really interested to find out myself. So having been a very nerdy student during my undergraduate has made me a little bit curious about, okay, so what makes it that some people from lectures, they learn a lot and some people, they learn much less and how my individual differences, state differences, uh, trait differences and psychological aspects, all part of that umbrella affect our ability to learn from lectures. So that was kind of like the topic I came to in the end with the PG cert and also then this research study. I think that's really interesting. I know some of the requirements we have as academics, we have to, there are, there are things we have to do and the sort of things you do at the start of your career, but that motivation is kind of interesting to 
the kind of foundation for some of your research, particularly around the big issues around kind of learning and, and pedagogy and and certainly in a higher education context around motivation and, and actually how does that impact and affect the learning process. So I suppose it'd be really useful to get, I think that's a really interesting rationale and, and kind of motivation for the work. So what was the, if you can give us a, the classic elevator pitch, the, the 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 short kind of focus of the article, because obviously, you know, this is for everyone who's going to read this afterward, this is obviously a, a full length journal article. So just kind of keen to hear that that snappy introduction of what, what's the main focus of the article. Most of the people who've who are listening to this probably have attended a lecture or lectures. And in some lectures, they learned a lot. And in some lectures, they probably didn't learn much at all, even though they might have wanted to. So for me, I've always been quite curious. Okay, I'm often myself personally quite motivated to do things, to achieve certain things. But then I fall at the final hurdle kind of thing, or maybe at much earlier hurdles, so to speak. So the beginning point or the beginning factor is, okay, so how does our motivation to achieve in a course and consequently to learn from a lecture, how does that motivation affect our actual learning from a lecture? So those are the two key variables which form probably the foundation of this research study. So it's motivation to learn from a lecture and then the actual learning. And the two main, well, moderator and mediators, so the kind of like affecting factors, psychological factors associated, which might control this relationship between motivation and actual learning. In this study, we looked at mental effort and uh, state self-control. So firstly, in terms of mental effort, okay, so if I'm in a lecture and I'm motivated to work hard, well, I'm probably going to invest more effort into the lecture. And if I invest more effort, I pay closer attention to the lecture. I try harder to make better notes. I try harder to really understand and think deeply about the knowledge being presented to me. Then I should, in theory, learn more. And then I thought back to myself, okay, and also looking at some of the literature, well, sometimes we're quite motivated. Sometimes we want to invest the effort. And especially we feel this motivation before the actual action or the lecture. But then once we start the lecture, once we start whichever event it is, we might run out of steam pretty quick. We might run out of effort pretty quick. And this might be, and our study suggests this is the case, that we need self-control to actually turn our motivation into mental effort to learn from a lecture. Um, so this self-control as a concept is our ability to overwrite and control kind of like intuitive and automatic habits almost. So our habit as a person is to conserve energy, to have a happy, easy life um, and just enjoy things. And sometimes us lecturers, we don't make that particularly easy in lectures, especially <laughs> if we're teaching statistics, for example. Yeah. So if we have high self-control available, it seems to be based on this study that we are more likely to be able to keep on investing effort in line with our motivation to learn from the lecture. No, thanks, Robin. I mean, that's that's really interesting, both in a in a sort of societal sense about people's ability to do the things that they like to do, and actually that kind of self control and the, <laughs> avoiding procrastination. But I think that that's particularly pertinent, you know, having worked in in higher education for a long time as well. What that looks like for different types of students, and how do you kind of support and facilitate that? So just just to kind of to sort of drill it into into the details a bit more around the the type of data you collected for this article, I, I, I see this is primarily focused in, in undergraduate, uh, final year undergraduate students. C can you just talk a bit more about the, the type of data you collected for this article and, and, and how that provided the foundation for your kind of wider analysis and, and, and conclusions? One thing I'm particularly proud of the studies, it's, in my opinion, reasonably high generalizability. 
So this was not kind of like a separate experimental lecture that was optional or not related to the program. Instead, we were quite lucky to, and also quite, it was quite a job to ethically, and going through the ethical process of approval and so on, uh, run this sort of study with a real cohort who will be assessed on this sort of content to increase the generalizability of the study. So it was, in the end, a correlational study because it probably wouldn't have been ethical to actually manipulate the learning environment too much from what is normal within students. And yeah, we gave uh, questionnaires on motivation, so mastery approach and a couple of other dimensions, mental effort during and after the, um, the lecture. We assessed state self-control. And also then at the end, we gave participants a test on the lecture content to assess immediate learning from the lecture. Okay, so how much do they actually take away come the very end of the lecture? So yeah, I'm quite proud that it was all in the cohort for whom the content was really truly relevant and representative of the importance they would normally have with lectures, which I'd like to think is a real strength of the study. I agree. And I think that's interesting, the the, the point you note about the ethical approaches for this. I mean, obviously, that's important for, for kind of educational and social science research in general, but particularly stuff in this wider space around how do you construct an appropriate experiment, but also ensure that it's, it's, it's ethically appropriate and um, you know, it, you know, not only passes university processes, but actually it's, it's, it provides a firm foundation for the work you're doing. I mean, and again, there's a few things I, I definitely want to kind of pick up as we, as, we, as we head through this discussion. But what do you think are the most important findings of this research? You mentioned about the generalizability, which I think is really important, both not just in a, in a higher education context, but it's, it's transferability to other educational context but it's not disciplinary specific because I know this is with final year undergraduate sports coaching students so do you think this isn't this is sort of invariant to the to the types of disciplines and also perhaps the level of study of the students I would like or hope to think so one potential confound is that these were final year students which of course increases the relative importance of any lectures they attend potentially because in the UK Normally, third year is the most valuable one towards the final degree classification. So the exact effects in kind of like earlier years in university, first year, for example, might be slightly different. But in terms of, yes, just like you pointed out, topics and also in terms of kind of like generally the kind of like level of study at university, hopefully those uh, results are quite generalizable. I, th I think it is interesting and unsurprisingly that there is a wider context to this work. This is the Wales Journal of Education. We care about what's happening in Wales, but actually there's that wider international lens. Uh, is isn't just about research in Wales, but uh, but I guess there is that point around the applicability to the, the to the broad the kind of educational context in Wales, both from early years all the way through to post-compulsory. But I suppose clearly the, the COVID context is there. So it's, it's interesting looking at that thing around motivation and what does that mean because we've had these disrupted two and a half years. Where do you see this work? Does it have a COVID lens? Is it interesting what this looks like as we start to slowly emerge into a, a, a new post-COVID abnormal? Do you think this has an impact on the way in which we, we should be constructing learning, teaching and assessment? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, quite unsurprisingly, and that's why it's a fantastic point you bring up, COVID really complicates things. And although I am conjecturing and guessing a little bit, the exact effects of COVID in terms of either learning remotely and over the computer, for example, for students, or learning in person, how exactly these effects manifest might be quite individualized. So, for example, self-control uh, resources of an individual, they seem to be quite heavily affected by the autonomy they perceive of their environment. So it's possible that individuals who get the choice between 
attending a lecture remotely and streaming it or uh, attending in person that might give them the autonomy that no matter in which setting they attend the lecture, be it in person or remotely, having had that autonomy, it actually increases their self-control. So it might be kind of like um, that a next step for this line of research might be looking at individual factors and preferences. Um, similarly, motivation seems to be influenced and affected by um, the relevance of content that's perceived and also by perceiving interactiveness, for example, and almost like um, gamification has also been linked yeah. to motivation. And how exactly those different aspects might manifest can be different between online environments which have become pretty normal in, during COVID times and in-person environments. But I think overall, actually, and again, I'm just conjecturing, but my own personal experience from having taught online and actually started my lecturer career online is that it's forced me to look for more unique ways to interact with students because inherently my initial opinion was that online lectures can be very dry and even less engaging potentially than in person. And I'm sure many lecturers might share this opinion. So it's forced me to try and look for new methods to engage students, new technologies in particular, um, such as Mentimeter, for example. And there's loads of other uh, technologies available to increase the interactivity, the gamification almost of my lectures to increase that motivation and hopefully overall increase learning. I, th I think that's a great general point. Uh, in ge you know, we, we've seen this massive disruptive impact that COVID nineteen has had on, on education across all kind of settings and contexts, and both the the challenge and disruption of what that's meant for kind of routine business in the sense of the mode of delivery and the kind of rapid emergency remote teaching and the kind of rapid shift to online. But actually, what that means, the kind of COVID nineteen is a catalyst for positive change. Like, actually, what are the things we can stop doing does it um, afford us the ability and empower us to be able to fundamentally redesign that we the way that we might approach learning teaching and assessment and i think some of this work is really interesting around there's you know the academic and pastoral side about you know how do students learn particularly in an he context and what kind of support do we need to think about engagement to think about developing grit and resilience and to provide the kind of the structures and, and frameworks in place so where do you see this work developing going forward like what what are the next steps with this work the cool thing is it adds to already a big body of literature on both motivations effect on learning in the educational context and then also self-controls, uh, self-controls kind of influence on learning and educational performance. Um, so it fits in quite nicely and hopefully it'll show that actually when looking at relations between different state or trait psychological aspects on actual learning, we need to look at interactions perhaps a bit more. Quite often to some extent in, in some research I see um, relations or um, different effects and differences between certain very isolated variables, which in one sense is good research for establishing cause and effect. But quite often, just like we've talked earlier, the individual perceptions, individualization, and then wider effect of many different variables. You mentioned resilience, for example, that can also fit into this line of work, for example. It can all get very complicated very quickly. And I hope, or my dream, quite um, blue sky, but I hope that in 30 years' time, We'll have understood the basic relationships between psychological variables and educational performance and learning, yeah. learning well enough that we can move towards a more holistic, maybe a more multimodal understanding and approach to evaluating learning and the factors affecting it. 
Thank you very much, Robin. I think that's a great point to end on, particularly as we, you know, we've seen the start of the new curriculum for Wales from this September in a compulsory education setting, and actually what does that look like in a in the context of having health and well-being as one of the six areas of learning and experience, and that much more holistic approach to not only to learning and teaching and education and learning more generally, but actually what do we want to achieve from national curricula, compulsory education, what are the expectations from that learning experience and that, that kind of life course from you know five to the age of 16 and, and post-compulsory. So, thank you very much, Robin, that's great. Hopefully you'll be tempted to find the article online and all you need to do is visit the Wales Journal of Education website. As Robin alluded to earlier, the journal is a platinum open access journal. It's bilingual, it's available in English and in Welsh. It's available to read at no cost and can be downloaded as many times as you want. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much to my guest, Dr. Robin Owen. And this is the second episode in a series of, of new podcasts for the journal, where myself and, and the other editors will be discussing research that's been published in the Welsh Journal of Education. So you can subscribe in your favourite podcast app or listen on our website. Thank you very much.